All right, good morning. How is everyone? All right, so I am not sick. I just lost my voice. I've been at Camp Ponda with these teenagers for an entire week, and uh, it was a total blast. So I, uh, I yelled a little bit too much and a little bit too loud. So um, anyways, some really exciting news. You know, I, I, I shared with the first service that, um, man, God is so good, you know, um, in the midst of a student pastor transition, it's been such a blessing for me um, to be able to be like a youth pastor again for a whole week. And uh, I absolutely love the teenagers of our church. If you have a teenager, if you're in, in the trenches raising teenagers, I just want to tell you that you're doing a good work. Don't come down. Don't give up. Um, keep pursuing Jesus. Keep investing in your kids. This past week was phenomenal. We had, um, I would say, probably eight to ten uh, students that made a rededication of their faith. Uh, and then um, I believe that uh, uh, we had one student, uh, I think, that gave their life to Christ. So really excited about what God is doing in our uh, student ministry. And um, so yesterday... I was um, thinking about Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, and I felt like the Lord was kind of impressing upon my heart to kind of go there, talk about it for a few moments. Um, I didn't know the set list, and then we just sang this last song about, um, about heaven and how we're going to be in God's presence for eternity, and the angels are singing holy, 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 and we're gonna forever echo, holy is the Lord. I don't think that's a coincidence, and so um, I think it's God's providence. So here's what I want us to do. We're gonna go to Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna look at verses eight and nine. I think it's one of the greatest verses, uh, passages in all of the Bible. And um, I want us today to um, think deeply on our salvation, I want us to be reminded of what Christ has done for us on the cross and what he accomplished. And I wanna talk about grace and faith and Christ and um, how Christ conquered the grave and, and we are victorious through Christ. But before we do that, I wanna set it up by going to the book of Revelation. I don't have any notes for you. Um, just kind of feel led to go there for a few minutes and kind of share a little bit. In Revelation chapter one, um, John has this vision of Jesus, and uh, Jesus is, um, it's this big, glorious, high vision of Jesus. He is the uh, resurrected Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, he is the one who has conquered uh, the grave and has the keys to death and Hades. Now, the first three chapters um, talk about the seven churches in Asia Minor. And uh, these are the churches that were represented um, uh, during the, the first and second century. And the churches in Asia Minor really represent all churches throughout all generations. So today, Summer Point Church, we represent one of those churches. When you come to Revelation chapter 4, I'm not going to have you turn there, stay in Revelation chapter 5. It says that, you know, John 
um, has this vision. There's a door that's standing open in heaven and there's a voice, uh, the sound of a trumpet that speaks to him and, and says, come up here until I will show you what must take place after this. John has this vision of this um, of the throne room of glory and the actual throne of God. And on each side of the throne, there's these living creatures. That they have eyes in front and behind. And, and um, it says that the four living creatures um, with six wings full of eyes all around and within, it says that day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So John is having this incredible vision of heaven and what is happening in heaven. There is worship, there is celebration, there's angels, and they're falling down and they're worshiping uh, the lamb and, and God who is on the throne. Chapter five, beginning in verse six. It says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scrolls, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. John has this incredible vision of heaven. And I just wanna highlight just a few things. You know, number one, it says in, in, in verse nine, they sang a new song. Anybody like new worship songs? Anybody? Well, guess what? In heaven, we're gonna be singing new songs. Heaven is gonna be one perpetual, never-ending worship experience. It says that they sang a new song. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll it says, for you were slain, speaking of Christ who is the lamb, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You know, we as believers, we have been ransomed. Christ's death, that payment that was made, ransomed, rescued, redeemed us um, from the curse of the law. Christ, his blood saves us. It says that he redeemed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. What does that mean? 
God's heart is all about the nations. God is passionate about the world. God wants people in North Korea, Australia, Canada, the U.S., South America, wherever you live, God wants humanity to come to a saving faith in Christ. You know, sometimes I think we think of heaven like heaven's going to look just like us. Actually, heaven is going to be Skittles. That's what heaven is. Heaven is going to be diverse. It says every language, tribe, people, and nation. And then it says, speaking of believers, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Jesus said that this is not our home. Right? We're a part of Christ's kingdom. We are citizens of a different kingdom. It says that we are priests to God. You know, one of the Baptist distinctives is the priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? Because Christ went, because of his death, and literally, literally, Christ going into the Holy of Holies, and the curtain was torn, symbolizing now we have direct access to God. See, Jewish culture in the Old Testament, the priests, only the priests could go in. Only the priests could make sacrifices. The priests had to represent the people. But Jesus said, no, Jesus was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He was the one who, who makes it possible for us to know God. He gives us direct access to God. So as believers... We can go directly to God. We don't need to go through someone else to get to, to, to get to God. Jesus is our advocate. He is our mediator. He's our go-between. So as believers, we're a part of his kingdom. We're, we're, we have the, the priesthood. We, we, we can access God. It says that they're worshiping and they're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I was just thinking about that passage yesterday. And the question that I want to ask you this morning is, are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? John's having this vision of heaven, and we know that heaven is experiencing the presence of God. How can you know if you'll be there? I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. I think it's one of the greatest verses in all the New Testament. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. One, one of my lines that I, I have probably said a million times over since being the lead pastor here is, um, we should never get over the cross. We should never get over the gospel. The gospel is not just a one and done experience. The gospel should be lived out. Your life should be gospel focused, gospel centered. What the gospel did, the gospel being the life, death, resurrection of Christ, the good news of God saving faith, his grace, what took place when you got saved was the beginning of living out the gospel. It wasn't the end. A lot of people treat that as, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I said that prayer. I gave my life to Christ. I'm good to go. No, no, no. That's just the beginning. You're in the, that's the starting block. That's the starting block of the race. Now you got to run the race. 
And so I want us to this morning, I want us to be reminded of some simple gospel truths. I want us to be reminded of what Christ accomplished on the cross. I want Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to penetrate us, to really speak to us. I want us to relish in these gospel truths. I want us to, to, be, to be saturated with the truths of, of God's word from these two powerful, simple, yet so profound verses. Here's point number one, saved by grace. That's the big idea. That is the big idea. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? You might say, well, what are you talking about? For by grace you have been saved. Saved from what? What am I being saved from? Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment. You can't understand, you can't embrace, treasure, cling to God's grace until you know who you are. So the question is, who are you? See, this, this, is, this is why a lot of people, they, they don't understand the gospel because they don't fully understand who they are. You have to understand God's perspective of who you are, which is the bad news, before you can cherish the good news. And so the bad news goes all the way back to the beginning. God created the universe. He created man and woman in, in his image. What does that mean, in his image? It means to be like him, to be in relationship with him. Adam and Eve were given authority to rule over creation, but that rule was not ultimate. The authority was not their own. It was given to them by God. God doled that out. God allowed them to have that kind of authority. But at the end of the day, they were subject to God. They were under his rule. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil planted in the center of the garden was a stark reminder of that fact, that they were not living life by themselves. They were under the authority and the rule of God, who's the creator of all. They ate from the tree, and by doing that, they were shaking their fist at God. Ultimately, they were rejecting God's authority over them. They were declaring independence from God. See, you know, sometimes, you know, people talk about Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they ate from the tree, and then sin came into the world, which is true, but they kind of treat it like it's like this little just childlike story. No, here's the deal. They doubted the goodness of God. They disbelieved God. God gave them warnings. God gave them boundaries. God was very clear about, about the authority that they had, but he was also very clear about what they couldn't do. They didn't like God establishing those rules. That, that shows how sinful we are. We want to make our own rules. We want to do our own thing. you know. And so they disobeyed God. They shook their fist at him. They didn't want God, the creator, to be master over their lives. They didn't want the umbrella of God's authority over them. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. The serpent said, the serpent caused them to, to doubt God. Well, surely, right, surely your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. 
They disobeyed God's commands. They, they didn't adhere to, to God's word. They didn't take God's, God's word as, as, as truth. And so they ate from the tree. Their spiritual life with God ended. Can you imagine walking with God in the cool of the day? Can you imagine what that must have been like? When they sinned, their fellowship with God was completely severed. It was broken. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here's what Paul is telling us in that verse. Adam and Eve got us into a lot of trouble. Because of their sin, sin leads to death. And this means that we as humanity were born with a sinful nature. We've broken the word and will of God. God's law has been broken. The Bible doesn't just say that we're sinners. The Bible says that we're spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians 2.1. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And you might be like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm, I'm, I'm dead in, in, in my sin. That means this. You can be physically alive, spiritually dead. Your heart can be beating. You can be breathing. You can have rational thought. You can have conversations with people, right? You, you're, you're living life, right? Physically, you're there. You're not dead. Spiritually, in relationship to God, you are spiritually dead, Dead people can't respond. When you are spiritually dead, you're not responding to God. There's no life within you. God has to impart spiritual life to you. You know, the bad news is sin, and then sin leads to death. But the good news is that the Garden of Eden paves the way to the cross. It's not all bad news. The Garden of Eden paves the way to the cross. Adam got us into the mess. Christ came and fixed it and, and, and created a, a way for us to know God, a way for us to be reconciled back to God. The Bible says that we will stand before God and give an account of our life. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Notice that. Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So, I want you to notice several things. Number one, when you stand before God, judgment day, your mouth will be silenced. What, what that means is, there will be no time to explain. There will be no plea. There will be no excuses made. There will be no room to make your case. Every mouth will be stopped. It says the whole world, the whole world, including you, including me, will be held accountable to God. Now you might say, well, held accountable, what does it mean? The Bible's really clear. You know, in, in the Old Testament, actually in the book of Exodus, um, it reveals to us the riddle, the riddle of the Old Testament. And here's the riddle. The riddle is the guilty will not go unpunished. 
And so we know that the gospel solves that riddle. Christ was punished in our place. Christ took our sin and God's wrath so that we might be uh, made right with God. The Bible is very clear that God's not going to ignore sin. He's not going to excuse sin. He's going to deal with it. So I just want you to think about your life maybe like as a movie. Right? You're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account to God for everything. Every word, every thought, every deed, every action, every ungodly, wrongful motive of your life. Here's the second point. Save from our sins and ourselves. So first point is we're saved by grace. For by grace we've been saved. Second point is we're saved from our sins and ourselves. Let me give you a definition of sin in its purest form. Sin is when you want to be your own God. That's what sin is. Sin is you wanting to be God in the place of God. You wanting to be your own God. You wanting to live your own life. You know, the word grace simply means unmerited. It means unearned. It means it's undeserved, right? Grace is God giving us something in Christ that we do not deserve. And that is his forgiveness. That is the cross. That is his love for you. You, didn't, you don't deserve that. God's mercy is God withholding something that you should get. He withholds judgment. He withholds condemnation right? God withholds these things. We are forgiven because of God's grace. He gives us something we shouldn't get, and he saves us by his mercy. He withholds something that we should get. We should be judged. We all, as sinful people, should go to hell because God is holy and he's righteous, but because of Jesus, Jesus makes it possible for us to know God. You know, grace is not something that can be achieved. It's not something that, like, you can work for. That's why I said it's unearned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited, right? You know, grace is something that God doles out. God gives to us, right? You don't get grace. Grace gets you. God pursues you. God sends Jesus to, to pave that way, to die for your sins. You know, when I think about grace, grace um, hugged the stink out of the prodigal son. It's a beautiful story about this prodigal son. He won the inheritance. He really didn't care about his dad. He took the money. He went to a far country, squandered it. The Bible says that he came to his senses, which really is a beautiful way of, of uh, it's a picture of repentance. He came to his senses. He had a heart of repentance. Change your heart, change your mind. I mean, he's eaten out of a trough bucket, man. This guy, a, he's a Jewish kid. And he's like, man, my, my ser the servants back home with my dad, they have it better than I do. And, and he started reciting, rehearsing what he was gonna tell, tell his dad. He goes home and guess what? It says that the father is waiting for him. And I've preached on the prodigal son many times over 13 years. And I've always said, I've always said this, the father is standing and waiting for his son to come home. 
In the story, in Luke 15, it says that the father runs to his son. And I've always said that Jewish fathers didn't do that. That wasn't customary, right? Jewish fathers didn't run after their kids. It's a picture of God pursuing and running after us. God waiting for us to come home. Grace changed the heart of the prodigal son. You know, grace impacted the apostle Paul's life. Paul, before he was Paul, the writer of scripture, under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, before he was Paul, the missionary church planner, he was Saul. He hated Christians, he murdered Christians, he threw Christians into prison. He stood there and he gave the green light for people to, uh, to be executed, like Stephen, the first Christian martyr. But when Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life was forever wrecked. When I think about doubting Thomas, you know, poor guy, he's like forever labeled, you know. We don't know him as Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? This guy's forever labeled. He did not believe until he saw Jesus' hands. And when he saw his hands, when he saw the resurrected Christ, he said, my Lord and my God. The grace of God drove all of his doubts away. When I think about Peter, Peter was the leader of the pack, right? He was the leader of, uh, of this band of ragtag disciples. He was the outspoken one. He was the boisterous one. I think Peter was the party animal. He was always finding a way to put his foot in his mouth, right? Just always just bad timing. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. But man, I love Peter because he had so much faith. He had bold, radical faith. Peter, one of the the leaders, he's a part of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, the the three closest disciples to, to Jesus. We know the story. We know that Peter denied Jesus three times. Denied that he knew him. Denied that they were friends. I mean, at the most critical moment of Jesus' life, when Jesus needed these men, these teenagers, to be with him, Peter scattered. He denied him. But we know that after the resurrection, Jesus encounters Peter that day. And then, at several weeks later, in the Sea of Galilee, he restores Peter over breakfast. God's grace can restore and forgive and change us. Grace is God's work within us. Here's the reality. We have all made a mess of our lives. You've made a mess of your life. I know you have because I've made a mess of my life. There's a lot of mess. There's a lot of junk. There's a lot of dark stuff that we've done in our past. And, 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 and I'm here to tell you that God's grace can match any dark, deep sin you've ever committed in your life. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says, Now the law came, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that where it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, right? Sin 
reigns in death, but grace reigns through righteousness. You know, when it comes to your sin, you can't have an inferiority complex. And what I mean by that is, an inferiority complex says, God could never forgive me. There's no way that God could forgive me. There's no way that God could forgive my sin and and all the junk that I've ever done, all the stuff I've ever committed. And I'm here to tell you that he can. There is guilt in our lives. And, And either you allow the guilt to drive you to Jesus for, for Jesus to, to change you from the inside out, or you allow the guilt used by the enemy to enslave you, to shackle you to your sin. The inferiority complex says, God could never forgive me. There's no way. The superiority complex says, I can forgive myself. I don't need Jesus, I don't need the cross, And when you think like that, when you're like, you know what, I don't need Christianity, it leads to pride and self-righteousness. And the reality is, we need Christ. We need a grace-saturated heart. God's grace working in our lives. Here's point number three, saved through faith. So we're saved by grace, we're saved from our sins and ourselves, and then now we're saved through faith. Notice what it says, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul is talking about faith, and he's talking about works. We are saved by God's grace unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor by God. By grace, we're saved through faith. Faith is trust, dependence. That's what, that's what the Greek word pisteo means. Like it's, we place our trust in Jesus. We are trusting in Jesus' finished work, what he accomplished at the cross for me. I'm not banking on anything else to get me to heaven. I'm banking on Jesus I'm banking on his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection for me. There's a difference between faith and works. Faith is trust in God. Works is the, 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 the proof, the evidence of genuine saving faith. If you're a believer, then people are going to see fruit in your life. They're going to see spiritual growth, there's gonna, there's gonna be some change in your life, right? But you're not saved because of your works. You're saved by grace, by faith, through faith in Christ alone. Now, when it comes to Christianity and religion, Christianity is God pursuing us, God pursuing humanity. Religion, it's about man pursuing God. Christianity, Jesus comes for us, right? There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing we offer to God. Religion says you have to offer to God. You got to come to God, right? Religion focuses on faith plus works or grace plus merit or Christ plus other mediators, right? Um, Religion says 
scripture plus tradition, right? The gospel is very simple. It's the good news of God's saving grace. You know, on one occasion, Billy Graham, after um, preaching the first night in England uh, during an evangelistic crusade, um, after he was done preaching that night, the more moderate and liberal scholars told Billy Graham that he set Christianity back 200 years. And Billy Graham said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was trying to set it back 2,000 years. Here's what I want us to do. I want to go back 2,000 years ago. I want us to look at the words of Jesus, the words of the apostles. The apostles were the disciples who followed Jesus. They were the eyewitnesses to his life, his death by crucifixion, and glorious resurrection. And I want you to hear what they said about someone inheriting eternal life. Look at John 3, 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Which, by the way, these are, this is red letter, this red letter right here. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else. Let me read that again. There is salvation, that word salvation is a, is a big word that simply means there is no deliverance from your sin. There's no forgiveness of your sin. There is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is coming from the apostles. When the church was born, they were preaching the gospel and they were pointing to Jesus. They were telling people, Jesus is the only way to be saved. Acts 16, 30 to 31. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Out of all of the passages, out of all the verses and passages that we read, there's one common thread. There's one word that keeps getting emphasized again and again and again, and that is faith. Faith is trust. Faith is dependence upon God. Faith pleases God. I love what John Stott said, the theologian. He said, faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Grace offers and faith receives that offer. What is the grace 
What is that gracious offer? God offered Jesus, his son, to die for the sins of the world so that we might be forgiven. And so faith is receiving that gift, is receiving that precious gift and following Christ. Here's point number four. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. You know, a lot of people think that, you know what? They pull up their bootstraps. They work hard. They get on the treadmill called religion and they just run as hard as they can, as fast as they can, as long as they can. Then you know what? Maybe, just maybe, God will accept them. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know what Paul's saying? When it comes to our salvation and eternal life, we contribute zilcho, nothing. Our salvation is unearned. It's a gift, right? There's nothing that you can do, right, for you to be accepted by God, except faith in Christ. Repentance, turning from your sin, placing your faith in Christ, that is it. There's nothing else you can do. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So works done by us in righteousness, going to church, getting baptized, giving money to the poor, right, being a good person. We're not saved because of that, because of our works. It says we're saved according to his own mercy. God's mercy saves us. God's mercy reaches out to us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus left heaven and came to the brokenness of our world. And he took upon flesh and he lived a perfect life and he was willing to give his life on the cross for you and me. The greatest display of God's love. God sent his son, gave his son for us so that we can be forgiven, so that we can know him. But a lot of people think, well, I got to bring something to God. I got to do something. Listen, I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis, he said, a man whose hands are full of parcels cannot receive a gift. You cannot receive the gift of salvation if your hands are full of religion, if your hands are full of pride, I can do it on my own. I'm a good person. I'm going to work hard. I don't need Jesus. If your hands are full of self-reliance or self-righteousness or, or your hands are full of good deeds and good works and, and you're just hoping that, that what you have in your hands, you know, maybe, you know, God will accept you based on what you're holding in your hand. Listen. God wants you to come to him with empty hands, nothing in your hands. Bring nothing to God except a heart that is convicted over your sin, heart that, that longs to know Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what it comes down to. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that many of us, we have probably read that verse 
hundreds of times, thousands of times. Maybe you've shared that verse with people when you've shared the gospel, but I want you to see it fresh. I want you to, I want, I want, I want you to soak in it. I want you to relish in these gospel truths. I want, I want, I want this verse to hit you like it's, hit, like it's hitting you for the very first time. For the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you deserve, you earn. Because of our spiritual brokenness and our spiritual baggage and our, and our spiritual condition, we deserve death. This is not talking about physical death. This is talking about spiritual death. See, we're all going to die. We're all going to take our last final breath. I mean, it's going to happen. I'm going to die. You're going to die. We're all going to die. Right? Cycle of life. It is what it is. And physical death is separation of, of body and soul. But spiritual death is a separation of your soul from God. If you're a believer, the Bible says that you will escape the spiritual death. The separation of your soul from God. You'll escape that. You were made by God. You were made with a soul, which means you were made to last forever. You were made to be with God for eternity. Just stop and think about that for a moment. The God who spoke and everything came into being created you, knows you, loves you. He gave you a soul that's going to live forever. And if you know Christ, his son, you will be forever united with Christ. You will forever enjoy the pleasures of heaven. You will forever be in the presence of God for eternity. If you have received this free gift of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Underline that, circle that, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. I can't say that enough. It doesn't say the free gift of God is eternal life in religion, in my parents, in my baptism, in going to church, Eternal life is freely given to you in Christ. Only in Christ. Only in Christ can you be made right with God. That's it. I mean, that's it. Now you might say, man, you mean to tell me you mean to tell me that my sins can be forgiven? Like, that, that God can change my life? I can have purpose? There's meaning? Yes. You can be made right with God by grace, not by works. If life after death hinged on works, there are two inescapable, unexplainable problems. If, if life after death hinged on works, which it does not, but if it did, if heaven, if gaining heaven, if gaining heaven was a matter of you 
being self-righteous, you doing good deeds, good works, we have two major problems. Number one, the death of Jesus was in vain, completely in vain. It was pointless. Why did Jesus leave heaven? Why did he come to earth? Why did he live a, 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 a sinless, perfect, righteous life? Why was he crucified on a cross? Why was he buried in a, in, in a, in a rich, man, rich man's borrowed tomb? Why did he come back from the grave three days later? Paul tells the church of Galatia, Galatians 2.21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law. So what he's saying is, if you could be made right with God by keeping commandments, like if you can get to heaven by being a good person, then Christ died for no purpose. There's a lot of people that think, man, you know what? It's based on me, but if it's based on you, then it's not based on Christ. Then what Christ did for you was pointless. Here's the second major problem. If, if we're saved by good deeds, good works, how good is good enough? Like, when do you know you've done enough good? When do you know, okay, all right, I did enough good, okay, now I can coast. I'm good, right? No one knows that. This major flaw, it's a major flaw. Here, here's, here's the deal. God doesn't save good people. You know, when I gave my life to Christ when I was probably 11, around 11, I wasn't a good kid. You know, you gave your life to Christ when you were young, teenager, college, maybe an adult. You weren't good. God doesn't save good people. God saves bad people. God saves broken people. God forgives sinners who are separated from him. I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, the law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. And that's what the law does. It shows you that your life is crooked. It's messed up. It's bent. But grace comes and fixes you. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection can forgive you of your sins, make you right with God, and give you hope beyond the grave. You know, some people think God's going to judge us based on a curve. God doesn't grade on a curve. God grades on absolute perfection. Okay, I'm getting ready to say something that's going to blow your mind. Who goes to heaven? Only perfect people. So if you want to go to heaven, you got to be perfect. Any, any perfect people? Anyone perfect? Anyone flaw, you know, flawless, perfect, great, right? I say only perfect people can go to heaven because of this. Jesus doesn't grade on a curve. Jesus took the test and because of his moral perfection, because of the life he lived and his obedience to God and Christ fulfilling everything and Christ being perfect in every way because we place our faith and trust in him, his moral perfection, his record 
was given to us. God who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of Christ. Christ who knew no sin took upon our sin, right? He took the test. He passed, flying colors, 100%, A+. He passed the test that you could never pass. He took the fire of God that we could never take. He took all of our sin, everything, and he appeased the wrath of God. He took all of the debt that you owe God, all of the punishment that you owe God, he took it, and he bore it. This is why it was a substitutionary atonement. We're sinners, he was the substitute. He was the one who, he stepped into the gap. He paid the debt, he took the punishment, he took God's wrath. He paved a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to know Christ. And that's the gospel. You can either accept the gospel and cherish the gospel and love the gospel and live the gospel out, or you can reject it. As believers, I think sometimes it's good for us to be reminded of the simple gospel truths. Where would we be without God's grace? Thank God that God enables us by his spirit to respond to him by faith. Thank God that God made a way, he made it possible for us to know him, that we can be forgiven, we can be forgiven of our sin, and we could be made right with God, who loves us so much. Let's pray.